After uh, my message last month, uh, a kind, sensitive brother uh, who knows that I often struggle with wondering whether I make any sense at all, came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder, and said that when I said, you know, I only teach once a month because that's about all I can handle, he was tempted to call out, uh, and that's about all we can handle. Uh, Stanley here, is that right? Yeah. Is that how it went? (laughs) Well, uh, next week, Stan Langhofer is going to be teaching, and I want to encourage you to to come and hear a message from his life that I think will be very helpful for all of us. And I'm not even going to say anything about the frequency of Stan's teaching. So, (laughs) all right. Before we get started today, I want to make a couple of disclaimers. Uh, First of all, you know, we're on the topic of ministry to the poor. And uh, I want you to understand that there are reasons other than laziness for poverty. I got that. However, some of my statements today, if taken too broadly or out of context, could be interpreted as insensitive to things beyond personal responsibility. Uh, Secondly, we believe that the Bible teaches to all situations, including government policy. Some churches intentionally avoid all topics political. Uh, That's not lion and lamb. Uh, While we do not think it is in the nature of biblical leadership to tell you for whom to cast your vote, we do not punches as to pointing out when government officials or government policy either supports or violates biblical command or principle. Moreover, you know, we don't embrace the dichotomy that some people refer to as secular versus sacred. In other words, there are things that the Bible is irrelevant for. Again, we believe that the Word of God applies to all of life, and therefore, we consider it not our option, but our responsibility to follow God's Word wherever it leads and inform our members about the consequence of biblical and non-biblical approaches to life on both the personal and the governmental levels. So, please keep that in mind. With all the teachers here at Lion and Lamb, I encourage you, if you have questions or concerns about something taught either up here or in Sunday school, we urge you to talk to uh, the person teaching because it is impossible to clearly communicate uh, to all people so that each listener fully understands the intent and the spirit. Uh, We all speak and hear through different screens. And I, for one, am a master at making comments susceptible to misunderstanding. So please be patient. Uh, Back to last month. We started on the journey from principle to practical in uh, ministry to the needy by considering the nature of reality from our worldview, which is biblical Christianity. In that study, we considered the implications of the doctrine of creation. We also considered our foundational relationships with God, with self, with others, and with 
the rest of creation. Uh, we also consider the systems that mankind creates in order to manage creation. And those systems include our faith or our religion, our society, our economy, and ruling or our government. I've listed on the study sheets there some of the lessons that we took from that teaching because we hope to build on the understanding about the best approach to ministry over time from others who have been down this path before us. The label Black Letter in Insights actually comes from law school. And there we would, we would search for principles or rules of law that we could count on and we could apply consistently. And those were called black letter law. Uh, we hope to build a list of these insights for general application in ministry to the needy. Please also keep in mind that the leadership of Lion and Lamb, we're trying to figure this out ourselves, how to best minister to the needy. So please continue to pray for us. Today we want to start with the doctrine of the fall, a distinctive of our worldview. I think you probably are all familiar. After God created, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, sort of a utopia, where all their needs were met and they had perfect relationships. But sin entered the world when these two chose to succumb to temptation and disobey God. One of the consequences of what is called the fall is that God gave pain in childbirth to the woman and labor to the man. On this issue of work, we touched upon this last month as a point of tension with how poverty alleviation is carried out today. If the biblical principle is, if you don't work, then you don't eat, as Paul says it is, then we can short-circuit or violate that principle by simply handing food or money to a person if he has the ability to work and earn for himself, but he's just lazy. In addition, we rob that individual of the dignity and respect of providing for oneself and one's own family. Now, when the government gets into the business of poverty alleviation, which it has for centuries, the problems grow exponentially. Usually, the stated goal is to provide for the vulnerable, often women and children. The American experience, however, is that one way to guarantee a lack of motivation to work is simply give handouts, a check. While some only use government assistance as a temporary stopgap after a crisis, I think it is beyond dispute that our government has created generational poverty by robbing people of the motivation to work contrary to biblical principle. One of the casualties, one of the other casualties of governmental assistance has been the family. The concept of the head of the household is almost foreign to many recipients of government assistance. Some societal forecasters have said that with current trends, in only 10 years, only 30% of American children will live in two-parent homes. This right-hearted, wrong-headed approach 
to poverty alleviation by our government has literally emasculated much of the male population and rendered them irrelevant to the family. It is Uncle Sam, not Dad, who brings home the bacon. Again, one's worldview or faith makes a difference. Our government, with its faith in man's reasoning, while no doubt helping some people in need, has managed to decimate one of the foundational institutions of our society. This, all in the name of helping women and children. Now, I personally see this, the effects of this regularly as an attorney working in adoption. The rule, with few exceptions, is that biological fathers in our culture do not step up to the plate and take responsibility for their children or the mothers that are carrying them. The sin nature of man, rewarded and encouraged by government handouts, has virtually disconnected the act of procreation from male responsibility. The victims of this emasculation, women and children, of these absent, irresponsible fathers. What kind of love is this? Now, while there may be many things that government can change to do better in its role of addressing poverty, because government is such a huge institution and bureaucracy, it is very difficult for government to carry out this function in a biblical fashion. The one thing it does do is it provides a bright beacon of how the church should not minister. Now, there are other consequences of the fall. All of the foundational relationships Adam and Eve experienced in perfection were damaged. Their intimacy with, with God was replaced with fear. Instead of healthy self-acceptance, they felt personal shame. Their relationship with one another suffered because Adam blamed Eve for the fall. And then their relationship with the rest of creation suffered because God gave them pain and labor of both the ground and childbirth. Now, the distortion of these relationships, these foundational relationships, affects our systems as well. When a nation loses its connection to God and fails to see all as created in his image, governments have sanctioned slavery and even genocide. When our relationships with self and others are strained, even things that we know are vital are denigrated and marginalized, like marriage. When we fail to see creation as part of our stewardship responsibilities, some industrialists have sacrificed our environment in the name of profit, also known as greed. You add Satan into this mix, and you can see why both systems and individuals struggle. Last, not, last month, we asked the question, what is poor? And we concluded that it is much more than material resources. Some have defined poverty as what happens when these foundational relationships don't work. They're unjust, they're not for life, or they're not in harmony. Yet these systems hold together among all their degeneracy because of the sustaining power of God's word. Even in America, slums, and in Port-au-Prince, 
Children still laugh and play. Flowers smell good. Governments provide some helpful services. Capitalism provides markets. And a baby smile still produces joy. Truly, Christ continues to hold all things together. But if we define poverty as broken relationships, that kind of changes our perspective. So we might ask, who are the poor? The title of this message comes from the mouth of that great philosopher king, Pogo. Now, I'm going to have a survey now, just primarily of age. How many of you have any clue as to who Pogo was? Raise your hand, please. Not very many. That's what I suspected. Pogo was a comic strip character, kind of a furry creature out of the swamp. I don't remember a lot about it. But he made this statement in one of his editions. He said, we have met the enemy and they are us. And this statement was latched on to by a number of active, activist groups like environmentalists and used for their purposes. Uh, and I personally have the right to plagiarize and paraphrase Pogo because I am one of the few here old enough to remember that ancient comic strip. Because the fall affects all our relationships, all of us are poor in the sense that we're not experiencing God's four foundational relationships in the way he intended. Each of us suffers from a poverty of spiritual in intimacy, poverty of being or, or lack of self-acceptance, poverty of community with others, or poverty of stewardship, the way that we treat what God provides and, and what he created. Therefore, we cannot experience the full joy the way God intended of those relationships. And we can see this. Uh, this poverty that results from these broken relationships can mean estrangement from God, can mean lack of self-acceptance, guilt, disharmony with loved ones, or a lack of appreciation and care for God's creation. But for many, frankly, for most of the world, it also includes a lack of material resources. The point here is that until we understand that we are all broken, we, we are all poor, our ministry to what North American church people calls the poor will likely do more harm than good. Again, as we learned before, what researchers have found is that a feeling of shame, the poverty of being, is the near universal experience of the materially poor. As in the teaching last month and reaffirmed by Mike last week, there are divergent conclusions that can be reached based upon our faith or our worldview. Remember William Wilberforce versus Margaret Sanger. The poor can unwittingly adopt Sanger's view that they're not made in the image of God, therefore they're inferior. They believe that. We, the materially rich, including everybody in this gym, by the world standards, also suffer from a strain of this poverty of being because we have a subtle and subconscious sense of superiority. We think 
we are the ones who have achieved and obtained. Somehow, this gives us the right and the ability to decide what is best for poor people. Now, as a bit of an aside, it might be said that I've been a little critical of our government. Okay? Well, here's something different. I agree with the president, okay? at least in some sense. A while back, there was a flap when the president made the statement, you didn't build that, when speaking about some business owners. Now, as a reaction to his, frankly, largely socialist policies, he took a great deal of heat for that comment. And I'm not sure what people thought he was saying. I'm not even sure what he thought he was saying. But I found myself, when I heard that, thinking, you know, in some sense, that's true. Because when I'm honest with myself, I've got to admit, I owe everything to God. Even the breath that I draw. Everything I have comes from Him. Our prosperity is not a right granted by our Constitution or even by God. It's a privilege and a blessing from God, allowed by our Constitution, it allows us to help others, but it can be lost at the drop of a hat. Truly, we didn't really build our prosperity. Now, while the materially poor can suffer from a lack of motivation, what about our motivation? If you are involved in any ministry to anyone, let me ask, why do you and I have motives that go beyond genuine love for the people we may serve? If I'm honest with myself, I've got to admit that I kind of get some personal satisfaction from helping others. I probably don't mind when <clears throat> others express thanks. I may even take pride in doing something for someone who has less or because they can do less or, or a lot of things that tend to be pretty prideful on my part. Reality is that when I wish to do good, evil is still present with me, as Paul reminds us in Romans 7. <clears throat> One of the things that I am trying to learn is that our poverty, poverty alleviation efforts in the way we carry them out actually can make things worse. The poverty of being for both the materially poor, <clears throat> their feelings of shame and inferiority, as well as the materially rich, our pride and feelings of superiority. As a result of the fall, Every man's way is right in his own eyes. But God weighs the heart. So what do we do? To accomplish this paradigm shift, we as North American Christians have got to do a few things. One thing I would suggest is that we must come to understand that they, the poor, are not the only ones who are broken. We need to emotionally and in our hearts get to the point where we can say, I am not okay, and you are not okay, but Jesus can fix us both. Secondly, 
we must understand that poverty is more than material. There are many, many poverties around us. Yes, our focus has been on providing for material poverty, as it should be. But we cannot neglect those other poverties. God has provided so many ways for each of us to serve in a variety of ministries. Case in point, it's been mentioned that we've got 20-some young people down at Camp Barnabas. And their mission there is to allow disabled people to enjoy a Christian summer camp, which, as I understand, is the highlight of the year for many of those folks. A few years ago, some of our kids decided they wanted to go, or we told them to go. I can't remember which. Uh, As you may know, my son David is pretty much of a type B person, and he rarely shows his emotion. But when they returned in Kinkomia reported that David was weeping, literally sobbing during the closing Camp Barnabas ceremony, I knew something special had happened. Since that experience a few years ago, David has committed himself to working with the disabled. He's even taken a part-time job uh, where he cares for a disabled young man. I think Zach Whipperman has done the same thing. More recently, David started to work with Capernaum, a ministry of young life that we had featured uh, last month. Uh, And this is a ministry to the disabled. I suspect the name came from the account in Mark 2 where you've got that crowd of people inside a a room and four guys bring uh, a paralytic guy up to the top. They dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down on the stretcher to be healed. Well, when Christy and I were, went to the Young Life Banquet a few weeks ago, at the end, just to kind of tell some stories quickly, they had different students walk across a stage with placards. On the front side, it had a problem, a poverty, if you will. And on the back side, they flipped over God's response. One young man from Capernaum came forward. His said, never been invited to a birthday party. Flipped it over, and it said, God provided friends who care. Don't ever neglect the poverties around you that many, many people suffer from. Perhaps the greatest privilege that I have in my job is to represent people who adopt special needs kids, some of whom will not live very long. I believe that those people have something special awaiting them in heaven. These special children affect far more than you can imagine. Some of those people are in this body. You see, each child has a purpose, whether disabled or not. God uses them significantly. Well, if it is our goal to actually minister to the poor in ways that will bring healing to them and to us, 
rather than just provide a little temporary relief and make us feel better about ourselves, we just may, through our words, our actions, and our attitudes, be able to help the poor recover their sense of value as created in the image of God. And for those who can, use their gifts and abilities to earn a living and regain their dignity. And even if they cannot, we need to treat them with compassion and respect. We, in turn, may also shed some of our prideful feelings of superiority. Now, we often say that we need to get our own house in order before we can help others. Part of that regrouping involves repenting from unbiblical attitudes that prevent us from seeing the poor in God's light. So the third thing that we can do about this state of affairs is to cast aside what some have referred to as the health and wealth gospel uh, and repent of our generalized materialism and see poverty in more relational terms. Now, we've talked about the health and wealth or, or the prosperity gospel before. Uh, now, at Lion Lamb, we've got folks from many different church backgrounds, so let me be clear. There's a concept that's taught in some churches that claims that God rewards increasing faith with good health and abundant wealth. Of course, the negative implications for the poor are pretty obvious. They simply lack faith, according to this view. It's pretty easy to discount this as pure heresy on several biblical grounds. We'll address the teachings of Jesus later, but for now, let's take the experience of Paul. If we look at his attempt to convince the Corinthian church of his genuine care and concern for them, but seen through the rose-colored glasses of the prosperity gospel, Paul would be viewed as, frankly, faithless. In 2 Corinthians 11, when he admits that he had endured more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities. Dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You know, according to some, Paul must have been doing something wrong. So, how do we feel about the link between our faith on the one hand and prosperity and health on the other? Well, health is a little easier to understand. Christians should generally be more healthy because we see our bodies as God's gift not to be taken for granted. We tend to avoid destructive lifestyles, uh, uh, excesses, substances that result in poor health. But reality is that our bodies wear out, and we are subject to sickness and injury, and sometimes, frankly, it's due to our own neglect or stupidity. God can heal when he chooses, but he can also use health or lack of it in our lives. Kent, are you saying that God wants us to be sick or injured? Well, sometimes, 
Yeah. The outside of salvation, the best thing that ever happened to me was to break my ankle and miss my senior football season. And then one day, as I was hobbling there on my crutches, feeling sorry for myself, a young lady came up and carried my plate, and I got a wonderful wife and a bunch of people in my family who loved me despite of my weaknesses because of that. You see, the point is that sickness and injury can be a part of God's plan for us in a season for reasons that are not readily apparent and maybe we don't even appreciate at the time. I view that as a personal tragedy, and God used it for good. Now, wealth is a little trickier. If we search for the word prosper in the word, we'll find many references to how those who are faithful to God should prosper. And it kind of sounds like support for the prosperity gospel. Prosperity in Scripture is often used associated with having many children or descendants. But material blessing is not excluded at all. You know, there are several examples, like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, uh, apparently Philemon, uh, or the centurion of Luke 7, who had the greatest faith in all Israel. Uh, Reality is that it is often rich Christians who provide for much of God's work. The hugely successful businessman R.G. Letourneau tithed to himself. 10% and gave 90% of his income for God's work. Clearly, it is neither wrong nor unchristian to earn and possess wealth. However, with material blessing comes greater responsibility. Luke 12 tells us, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. In addition... Material wealth also comes with greater temptation. Jesus hints at this in Matthew 19 when he tells us again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Proverbs talks a lot about poverty and wealth, and oftentimes it refers to those who lack as lazy or foolish. Being poor is really not very pious at all. In fact, in Proverbs, those who are prosperous are often those who work hard and wisely. At the same time, we've got to remember that there are other causes for poverty than laziness. One, frankly, is injustice. And we see this in some countries where the powerful and the wealthy keep the poor locked into their circumstances through caste systems or other controls. Now, while I don't understand all the the dynamics here, some have said that this is one of the problems in Haiti. Now, while there are certainly injustices in our country, I frankly do not see this as the general situation in the United States, although some might disagree. Here, there is really no concrete ceiling that prevents people from rising above their circumstances. Yes, it sure is harder for the poor to succeed than it is for the privileged few. But this is still the land of opportunity, still the economic envy of the world, and still the place to which people want to come for a brighter future. What keeps people in poverty in our country is a combination of things. 
primarily, as we've mentioned, a governmental philosophy over the last half century that maintains power by keeping people dependent upon its good graces generation after generation. The problem, this problem in particular, we can address by ourselves. First, we've got to demonstrate in our own lives how to be personally responsible, casting aside covetousness for material possessions, destructive and wasteful lifestyles. Fact is, folks, every dollar spent on cigarettes or lottery tickets is one dollar less for food on the table, kind of ipso facto. Uh, just because you can afford to do that does not remove your responsibility as a Christian to set an example of biblical stewardship for those who have a poverty of stewardship. Yesterday I was listening to the radio, I think it was WIBW, and I happened upon this discussion about gambling addiction. And they were talking about the account of uh, a single mom who came in and she needed some financial assistance. The counselor asked her what happened to her money. Some of her money went for legitimate stuff, some was wasted. But she said that her solution to the problem was to buy, to buy five lottery tickets and increase her chances. To put this in the vernacular of David Ramsey, these lifestyle choices are simply taxes on one's stupidity. Secondly, we must, we've got to do a better job in the marketplace of ideas and public discord to, re, to encourage a return to sanity, to pull people out of this subtle slavery, this dependence upon government assistance so prevalent today. A year ago, the Heritage Foundation reported that 67.3 million people, that's almost one out of every five Americans, from college students to retirees to welfare beneficiaries, depend on the federal government for housing, food, income, student aid, or other assistance once considered the, to be the responsibility of individuals, families, neighborhoods, churches, and other civil society institutions. Staggering. Finally, one thing we know we can all do is first be informed and then vote well. Okay, I'm just going to say any church leadership that says it's not biblical to talk about how biblical principles relate to current issues in government is not speaking biblically and frankly I think is derelict in their duty. But there are other reasons that people remain in material poverty. And one of those is the poverty of being that we've referred to that says I am poor I must be inferior. I can't live out God's purposes in my life, so why try? This is a lie from Satan who is implicitly repeated by several politicians, usually for their own benefit. What can we do about this? Well, on a personal level, we can adjust our own attitudes about the poor, beginning with any overt or subtle acceptance of this prosperity gospel. To suggest that the poor must lack faith is simply ridiculous. I don't know about your experience, but mine is that people who are poor, Christians who are poor, 
and those in poor nations have much more faith than we do. Because they're dependent for daily bread, and I mean daily bread. Proverbs 30 gives us a balance. And there it says, Do not give me riches or poverty. Feed me with my allotted bread, lest I become satisfied and act deceptively and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I become poor and steal and harm in the name of my God. So the text tells us that there is, in both poverty and wealth, there is an Achilles heel. We see that the poor can be tempted to covet, if not steal. But those who focus on obtaining riches are tempted to covet even more and become more dependent upon that which will bring destruction and uncertainty, as opposed to dependence on God, who is the only source that can supply all of our needs. Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 6. This is a rather long verse. Be patient here. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who testified with good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, without repentance from our subconscious prosperity gospel mentality, our arrogance will continue to increase the poverty of being of the poor around us by confirming their feelings of shame and inferiority and our sense of superiority. Finally, shifting gears here a little bit, do you find it ironic that Jesus would choose poverty as a virtue? We are not only all poor in that we each suffer from some form of relational poverty, But poverty of spirit is something we necessarily acquire as believers. 
Let me review some teaching on the poverty gospel from a couple of years ago. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are two Greek words for poor. Uh, Panesis is a word in Scripture to describe those who are poor to the extent that they must work hard for their livelihood. Patokos, the Greek word in the Sermon on the Mount for poor, comes from the word potoso, which denotes shrinking away from, cowering, cringing. It gives us the picture of someone uh, cowering in the corner, begging for alms. The potokos poor are truly disabled. They are those who can't work, so they must beg. That's the difference. Jesus uses the patokos word here to convey God's diagnosis of us. We are empty, poor, helpless. He can, or we cannot work out our own salvation. We are patokos poor, not just panesis poor. We need mercy from outside ourselves. And this is the condition of fallen man. No one from our own level can help us. His help, or our help, must come from one who is above us, from God himself. This help comes as Christ fills us with himself, his salvation, and his word. The world looks at uh, Matthew 5 and just shakes its collective head. Aren't poverty and pain to be eliminated? You know, to them, Jesus is talking nonsense and we are simply fools for Christ for believing in such a paradox. The resolution comes when we understand that to be filled with Christ is to be empty of self and the pride of the human spirit. Believers are blessed when we realize our complete emptiness without him and confess our need for total dependence upon him. With him, we can face trials, temptations, poverty, pain, even death without anxiety or fear. Theologically, this is called the doctrine of the depravity of man, which is the result of the fall. Man has nothing to offer God that will equal, earn, or merit his righteousness. Paul confirms this bad news in Romans 3, where he says there is none righteous, not even one, there is None who understands, there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. When we recognize our spiritual poverty, there is, that there's nothing in ourselves sufficient to save us. It's just gone. And indeed, to be more accurate, there's a huge debt with no resources to repay. That is is the kind and extent of our personal poverty. And this is what we must recognize when we come to the Lord's table today. We each have a debt we cannot pay. We are truly Patokos poor. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe, yours and mine. So if his sacrifice for us is not enough to bring all of us in humility to the point of reaching out to those who suffer from material or other poverties, well, God help us.
I want to close with 1 John 3, starting verse 16, where it says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue only, but in deed and in truth. Lord God, we pray that your word would soak in into our thick heads, that we would fully understand and appreciate our own poverty, that we are, in fact, poor in one way or another, and we have nothing over those who lack materially. Father, help us also to understand that you have made us poor in spirit, and we need to constantly empty ourselves and recognize that we have nothing, we are nothing, we will be nothing without you, and we owe everything to you. Thank you, Father, for the love that you've shown us. Please help us to carry out these things in our lives and be a true source of glory to you. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.